Welcome to the Thomas Industry Update podcast, actionable information for industry leaders. I'm Tony Uphoff. Deloitte predicts that there may be 2 million skilled manufacturing jobs unfilled by 2025 if we don't take steps to address the growing skills gap. But one promising solution to this industry-wide challenge has emerged, an increase in manufacturing apprenticeships. Nick Wyman is very familiar with the remarkable value of apprenticeships. As the CEO of the Institute for Workplace Skills and Innovation, a global enterprise committed to skills and workforce development, and as a former apprentice, Nick believes that a mentor-focused approach can help hone the skills of both young professionals and those looking for a change in their career path even years into their professional experiences. In today's podcast, Nick and I discuss the impact of apprenticeships, why both employers and employees should consider them as career development options, and why there's never been a better time in the United States to future-proof your industrial business. Let's start by discussing how you became so passionate about apprenticeship and and career opportunities in industry. Give us a little bit about your background, and I know some of this story, so I'll I'll tip a hand here. It's pretty unique. It's kind of a cool intro into this. Yeah, well, thanks, uh, Tony. It's great to to be here. So, uh, in short, it was uh, parental bias that got me to where I am today. My father uh, was an academic, and uh, he had ideas about a, a career pathway for young Nick. And uh, he thought I might like to follow in the family footsteps and get into academia. And I was a, a young person who liked to learn by doing. Yeah. And for an incredibly smart man, my father didn't see that the way that I liked to learn was this experiential learning. So he pushed pretty hard. And, and I came home and said to Dad, I really um, would like to try and uh, see what this whole culinary field is is like. So long story short, he organized work experience at the University Cafe, and that was a soul-destroying experience. There was a cook who had been uh, gratinating the same dish um, in front of a griller (laughs) for the last 35 years, and he'd worn a little patch in the tiles. And after spending a couple of hours, I came home and said, you know, Dad, I'm going to re-enroll in school and uh, and that's where I want to go. And there was a friend of the family who was uh, in restaurants and hotels and he said, you know, this is where I think you could go. So for a lot of young people entering the workforce, it's possibly getting advice from mum and dad is not always the best place to get advice and yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty tricky. So I navigated my way and uh, I'm probably not the world's best chef or best cook, but the skills that I learnt in my years in hospitality um, I use today. So this idea of transferable skills, and I'm sure we're gonna talk about that. Organization, talking to people, you know, just working with a group of people. These are skills that you can take with you through life. Absolutely. Regardless of changes in technology. Yeah, talk a little bit about, you know, what's true in Europe, what's true in different countries, and what is happening here in the United States. I made the comment to you, or perhaps the question to you, that apprenticeships, I think, are something that probably culturally existed and probably still do in Europe in different ways than they do in the United States. Yeah, sure. So um, apprenticeship uh, is the Western world's uh, oldest form of learning. 
and I have undertaken some research. I'm actually a practitioner. I should say that I'm actually an employer. I employ people. I'm not an academic. Uh, I'm not an economist. So I'm coming at this as the perspective of somebody who employs people. Yeah. Um, we've got about 800 people in our organisation. Wow. And we've graduated 16,000 apprentices. So that's my background. So um, the European experience, uh, I was first exposed in the 80s when I was in the culinary field. And I realised that in uh, Germany, um, I was actually in this thing called the Culinary Olympics in uh, in Frankfurt in Germany. So all these chefs come together from all over the world. And I was in, uh, you've probably picked up the accent, not from Brooklyn, it's, it's from Australia. Say, yeah. So I was in the Australian uh, culinary uh, youth team. Wow. And uh, we got to cook against all these teams from uh, Japan and Canada and... What an experience. Uh, like, how old were you? Uh, when you were I, was, I was 18. Yeah. So what a um, great experience. So, you know, this is where, uh, you know, Dad started to come around a little and yeah. say, okay, you know, you've got a trip sponsored by the Australian government to represent the country. And this is a year and a half after you've started your apprenticeship. And I realised that, you know, apprenticeship is not just something that was in my homeland, Australia. It, it's a global it's a global way of bringing people yeah. into the world of work. And yeah. there were teams, you know, Canada was really big in apprenticeship. And I met some people from Switzerland and I've kept those contacts up today. You know, I realised that it really is embedded into education and society to a larger degree than it, it is here in the US that um, quite often apprenticeships um, in Switzerland in Germany fill before university pathways and the thing that really amazed me about Switzerland is that whether you follow the vocational or the CTE pathway or the higher education PhD pathway you can actually move between the tracks yeah and that's quite acceptable yeah. so Young people don't have to say at school, am I going to follow a, a CTE track or a, yeah. or am I going to um, follow a, um, a college higher education yeah. type of track? You can actually have both. So yeah. I think that's really important. It's just how you get to the end goal. Do you do yeah. it through apprenticeship? No way is right or wrong, but there are options. You know, a lot of people throughout history who've gone through an apprenticeship, yep. some formally, some informally. But if you think about a surgeon and how a surgeon learns, a surgeon learns by not only classroom and textbook, but uh, we hope for all of us who've had surgery or need surgery, that someone has actually stood by that person and um, shown them in the field yes. um, and taken them through a process. So quite often there's um, some, some misconceptions about apprenticeship, it's the occupational forms of learning, um, that these are jobs that are jobs of last resort, uh, they're the consolation prize and yep. nothing could be further from the truth yeah. and yeah. particularly with technological changes, a lot of employers are definitely leaning towards people who have on the job yeah. and off the job experience. So yeah. quite often now employers uh, don't see classroom, they'll see classroom only education as possibly a disadvantage. Yeah, well it's interesting. We were talking a little bit about this before we went on air. Here in the United States, there used to be a pretty healthy vocational school uh, system and, and even uh, private industry around that that really fell apart when this myopic focus on a four-year degree was the only path forward. And I, I, I know when I was a kid growing up, 
there was a lot of my uh, contemporaries that went into two-year vocational schools that, that had apprenticeships and on-the-job skills training and things like that and did remarkably well for themselves. We're starting to see in this country a slow but sure return to that. But it's tough. It's, it's not happening in the way, frankly, I'd like to see. Yeah, well, I think one of the issues is that um, at a federal level and at state level, the the, the funding uh, sadly favours the former yeah. uh, style of education and that when shop class was eradicated from a lot of high schools, yeah. I write a blog for Forbes and I, I wrote an article about taking away shop class and there was over uh, 1.4 million people read that article and, and responded. Wow. And I, wow. uh, I had people in Washington, policymakers ring me and say, you know, you've hit on something here. People are saying, why Why is it that, you know, young people in high school can't get to actually see all the options and career options that are available? That's, that's the first, uh, you know, challenge we face. And I think when you're talking about, you know, the changing perceptions, um, mainstream media is doing a nice job um, talking about uh, college debt or student debt. Um, and that is a real factor that's weighing on parents and weighing on people a little bit unsure about... Um, how to make that transition into the workforce. Or Absolutely. We're not just talking young people, career changes. Absolutely. Um, yeah. If your industry is changing, yeah. technology is changing your industry, it's going to be a different type of work, but what are the skills and, and where do you go to, to kind of get that sort of training? And people are definitely looking at other options yeah. beyond class classroom only. And, and as I said, I think um, for those who, you know, this is not an anti-college or an anti-university conversation, but I think that people really need to say, if you're not sure what it is you want to do, don't go and sign up to a college course. It's very expensive way to get some career advice. You should go to a local company, local manufacturer, knock on the door. Someone will give you an opportunity to try it, industries, do some research. We all know that, you know, technology is changing the way that we live the way that we work and the way that we learn. It's not the end of jobs, but I think that there's misconceptions out there now which um, has got people saying, well, what options are available? So now we really need employers to come forward. They really need to get on the front foot and say, you know, these are the jobs that we have now. These are the jobs we think we have in the future. These are the opportunities that are available. There's the technical skills and then there's also the skills that you can take much like my apprenticeship, that you can take throughout life. And regardless of the way technology changes, um, you'll be able to, you know, keep current, use those skills, keep on learning, lifelong learning, really important stuff. Yeah, I I should put a caveat out there as well. I come from a family of academics as well, and I can hear my grandmother's voice, who was a college professor, in my ear right now, that she's thinking I'm saying college or a four-year degree is not important or essential. I think it is fantastic. Yes if directionally that makes sense for you, but it's not the only path forward. And and I think there's another thing implicit in, in your observation, Nick. If you go back to 2017, it was the first time in history that we had a second generation, the same size as the largest generation ever created, the baby boom generation, that was in the workforce at the exact same times, meaning the millennial generation became of equal weighting in the workforce as the baby boom generation. So we think that means a couple of fascinating things. One is, The demographic stretch in the workforce is the broadest it's ever been in history. Second thing is that we're starting to see job opportunities being created and and perhaps new skills required 
regardless of whether you're learning a new skill as a baby boomer or you're a millennial that's entering the workforce. And so I, I think this idea of perhaps what does a modern apprenticeship methodology or program look like today? You know, how, how, do, how do you view that, whether you're looking at that, the lens of a, a millennial that you might be advising or to somebody that's maybe needing new skills to retrain themselves for the jobs of the future? Yeah, reboot, refresh. Yeah. Um, I think that's, you know, as I travel around the country, I was just doing some work in uh, Kentucky and uh, in the mountains where you know the coal industry has yeah. has, has rapidly changed changed the type of work and um, you know there are opportunities and, and skill sets and I think it really is you know looking at the jobs that are available and 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 where industry is going but um, I, I did just want to pick up on that on that last point that you can have it all. You can have a CTE, you can do an apprenticeship, and you can go to college. Yeah. yeah. So message. Yeah. Good point. Uh, so Good um, point. It, it, it's, my grandmother would be pleased with that statement. Absolutely. So, but yeah. I say yeah. um, I've got this little saying: it's about the right education at the right time. Yeah. So yeah. well said. So quite often, um, so in my case, um, I went off and did further studies, but at a time that that worked for me, it was right for the uh, the employer I was working for, and and that was when I was. In, into my 30s but that was um, you know that that was the, the right time for me yeah so I think this idea that you're on a trajectory and that's your fixed position in life you know you've got to constantly yeah. reboot refresh um, and take on new skills because you alluded to um, you know the way that technology is changing the types of skills and I don't think there's anybody that is concerned that, uh, that the level of skills, is changing and is, is actually increasing. There are dangerous jobs, jobs that probably people shouldn't be doing. I was in um, Stuttgart in Germany and went to the uh, Mercedes-Benz plant in single fin- Finden, single Finden, and they make varying types of cars there, the S-Class, and, and it was really interesting to see which jobs were being done by uh, humans, which jobs yeah. were being done by um, yeah. robotics, yeah. and uh, the sort of the different training programs. And then I went down the road to uh, same city, the uh, the Porsche, uh, Porsche factory, and um, that was really interesting to see the existing plant where they build their classic 911 sports car. Where they actually produce a car every four minutes, by the way, which was incredible. Amazing. Um, and out of the window, we saw where they're building their new fully electric car. And I, you know, said to the folks there, "So here we are in the the current factory. We've got this many people, and these are the types of jobs they're doing. Tell me about how that's going to look in in this new factory." There is no question that that the jobs and the skill set is changing but it's really it's just new skills it's different yeah. skills yeah um, the skills are definitely are definitely moving upstream as I said that's something that absolutely um, so this is not saying drop out of education yeah. and you can just go and and sort of press a button on a factory production line these are you know high-end electric absolutely. vehicles it's a whole new world yeah. there's plenty of jobs but they may be different and I think sometimes these perceptions hold us back a bit and uh, they hold yeah. families back if you had a child that was, uh, you know, a a young adult that was graduating college, you might not say, hey, go into manufacturing because your impression of is back in the 1940s or 50s versus what it's like today. Yeah, I get that a lot, actually. I get people who say, you know, I'll be out at a social context and people say, oh, what what do you do? And uh, you start talking about apprenticeship and that's, that's great and that's fantastic. 
but not for my kid. Yeah. But yeah. not yeah. but not for my yeah. it sounds great. Yeah. But not for my kid. Yeah. You know. Um, and so I think these um, perceptions are not reality. Yeah. So absolutely the idea that um, the technological skills, are, you know, the technology is constantly going to change. But uh, the people skills, um, the skills that you can learn where you're learning on and off the job, simple things, um, you know, particularly now we're going to sort of focus a little bit on um, on younger people leaving school. We really want to teach resilience. Yeah. Things are going to change. Yeah. We know. Uh, yeah. I have a, a nine-year-old son and uh, he happens to love manufacturing. Yeah. He loves uh, cars, loves automobiles. He spends half his life at this Peterson Automotive Museum. Love it. Um, you mean it well. It, it's Know really it well. good because yeah. it shows the for a, for a nine-year-old, you can actually see how a car works, how suspension yeah. works. That's what we're missing. Yeah. And so quite often, I think people in manufacturing, we all see the shiny new end product. Yeah. Everyone gets excited. Yeah. So listeners can look around now, can look at their smartphone or look at their yeah. computer or look at their car. Um, I think it really, you know, people need to say, how did that get here? Yeah. And I'm not talking. Visualize the supply chain of Ab- that abso- and the process. Absolutely. Yeah. Transport and logistics. That's how it arrived. I suppose that's uh, yes. that's been quite literal. But then you go back into the supply chain yeah. and say, you know, what were the jobs and what were the roles and what yeah. was the technology and how yeah. does that, you know, how does that all come well, together? Well, you could argue, Nick, that we have our first true rock star out of that part of the world in Tim Cook, who's running, depending on the day, the, the first or second most valuable company on earth. Steve Jobs plucked him not because he was an engineer, not because he was a designer. He was a savant at supply chain logistics and he plucked him from Compact Computer. Nobody had ever heard of this guy in the Silicon Valley. Well, we all heard of him now, but he was a genius at being able to figure out how to get a supply chain around something as complicated as the iPhone. Because if you think the iPhone now, they were making that up. We didn't know what the iPhone was until they invented the concept. And it was actually Tim Cook that understood how to do that. So I think you're touching on some fascinating things. There's a a series of jobs and complexity around this. And I think the average person doesn't stop to look at the product they're holding in their hand or they're sitting on or they're watching television through or whatever they're interacting with and think, how was this actually made? Sure. Right? Sure. Sure. Talking of technology, you know, I... I uh, was reading a you know a couple of years ago there was somebody quoted I think it was Bill Gates talking about you know the future of work and there is this there's this sort of fear that runs around that it's going to be a jobless future and there was some articles I read about universal based income and trials being done in different countries around the world and um, I started researching and 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 one of the um, the sayings or not even the sayings I suppose it's a it's a method of you know production is from Toyota years and years ago, 2030, maybe it's even longer. It's called Jadorka and it's uh, it's translated to man or mankind and machine working together in harmony. Absolutely. So yeah. I don't think we need to uh, fear the robots or the robots are coming. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of opportunities, but it, it really is saying, well, what are the jobs of yeah. the future? What are the skills that we have? How can I pivot? You know, there's no question that we're going to see rapid change. And uh, so, you know, it really is a, it is a great time to Yeah, well, to I, think, I think you're touching on, on a, as I call it, a false narrative around that. And we see this through various cycles where technological change always precedes cultural change. So a, a new or advanced technology, we're seeing it around artificial intelligence or machine learning or additive manufacturing sure. where it spooks 
people and they think, uh-oh, this is going to replace jobs. I love the example of the, the Gates quote, but also the, the Toyota example. The example I oftentimes give is the banking industry. If you, in, in the United States, there was this old cliche of banker's hours. And banker's hours, the bank closed at 3 o'clock. Well, it closed at 3 o'clock not because people went home. It's because they had to spend enormous number of hours updating the ledgers manually. So it wasn't that the bankers all went home. They then did all the ledger work after the customers stopped coming into the bank. Well, technology completely transformed that. Well, you'd think, I guess all those jobs went away. There are more people now working in financial institutions around this country and around the world than at any time in history, but they're different jobs. Yeah. So man working with machine, women working with machines have fundamentally changed the way financial services operate. So yes, it took some jobs away, but it created exponentially more jobs in those industries. And I think there's tons of examples of that as we examine it. I, I want to kind of go back to the millennial thing just for a second, if I could. There's a study that, that we've spent some time with that came out not too long ago saying that there's early suggestion, if you will, or implications that many millennials are dissatisfied with knowledge work and they actually want to make something. They actually want to be involved in crafting a product or service. I think some of the examples you've been giving, they're not millennial centric, but they're examples of pride of craftsmanship. Do you have any insight into that? Do you, do you think that that's a trend where some millennials are, are thinking, hey, I, I don't know that I want to just work on spreadsheets all day. I want to be a part of actually producing something? Sure. Look, absolutely. Um, each generation, there are similarities and, and there are differences. But being a part of a team and, and things that are important uh, to this generation are not only focused about you know, an hourly rate or what am I going to earn or where is it going yeah. to take me? There's got to be job satisfaction. And to a certain degree, I think that's in everyone's mind, no matter where you are at, you know, whatever stage you are in your career, you do want to do something that makes you happy and, and that, that provides interest. So job satisfaction really is important. And yeah. one of the things that I do see sometimes is employers um, have a, a sort of a narrow um view about who it is they might employ and you know we've got this skills gap people without jobs and jobs without people there's seven million vacancies um, across the country at the moment and so what that means is it's pretty tough out there if you're an employer how are you going to um, you know appeal to yep. the next generation of workers well the first thing you're going to to need to do is really open up who you might employ so you really need to think can I tap into, you know, veterans, you know, people who may have been formerly uh, incarcerated? There's a lot of people Absolutely. incarcerated in this country who have desire, but they may not have the opportunity. Yep. And there's these horrible technology called uh, CV sort of scanning. I mean, if you've got them in your workplace, in your HR departments, get rid of those things because you're missing out on talent. Yeah. You need to meet yeah. people and it's really important that's where philanthropy really has a role to play, create some bridging programs, and, and that's an area that I'm really focusing in at the moment. So I think for employers to say, well, how are we going to attract the next generation of workers? You have to have this rock-solid commitment to workforce development. Yeah. Um, in a market that's really tight at the moment, you can't simply just you know put an ad up on the internet and say, we're looking for this worker and um, hope that's going to work. You've really got to invest in, in training programs. Apprenticeship, I'm biased, is, is, is one way. Yeah. There are other ways to bring people into your companies, 
because we not only want to attract them and retain them, you know, we really want to make sure that they're happy through work and life. We want to keep them. So retention is something that all employers Absolutely. need to think about. It's a really, really key point. Um, and so, you know, to, going back to your question, I think, you know, with the current generation, it's really important that employers understand what it is that um, is going to bring people, you know, to their companies. If they have a... And retain them, to your point. A, absolutely, Dick. retain yeah. them, yeah. yeah. So we want to yeah. train them and retain them. Yeah. Um, and it's all very well to, you know, for a young person to get a job, but we want them to keep that job. So yeah. Yeah. if you're thinking about starting up a youth-based program, consider mentoring. I'm not talking about oh, rocket science here. It's just things that have been done. Uh, maybe they need to be, you know, freshened up, but something as simple as mentoring plugged into a program, an existing program, um, set up a mentoring program in your company because um, that's that's what's really going to set you aside. Nick, I could go on and on. This is fascinating. But I want to finish off with two questions that we ask everybody and uh, give you a chance to, uh, to give your points of view on it. So the first one is, what's the one thing that you wish more people understood about manufacturing? The supply chain. I think back to my point that yeah. look at that object in front of you in yeah. your hand. It might be the glasses that you have that you're wearing. Um, yeah. You know, you're reading the newspaper. I love that. Think, think about um, where where that products come from. You know, all the different touch points. You know, a bit of reflection. Yeah, there are some there are amazing things. Um, you know, in the world, we talked about the iPhone. Think about you know how that was produced, how that was designed, yeah. how that was delivered, the yeah. distribution. I think um, we need to do a little bit more of that, and, uh, and that of course leads back to skills. Right. And then the second is, if you could put one sentence on a billboard that best expresses your personal philosophy, what would it say? Do it now. If you're thinking about starting a, uh, that's actually from the chair of our company, so I should credit that to him, but he's not one for, uh, he calls it prevarication. It's like, if you've got an idea and you're listening to this and you're thinking in my company or you're thinking about changing your job, it's really a great time to do it now. Think about going from a concept to an implementation. Start an apprenticeship program. Uh, there's never been a better time in the yeah. US to think about how you're bringing people into your organisation, how you're future-proofing yourself, how you're taking on skills. So it's a call to action. Do it now. To learn more about Nick Wyman, the Institute for Workplace Skills and Innovation, and apprenticeship resources for those looking to pursue an industrial career, check out the resources provided in the show notes of today's podcast. The Thomas Industry Update podcast is hosted by Tony Uphoff and produced by Makila Tierney and Lindsay Gilder. If you'd like to share your feedback about this or any other episode, please email us at podcast at thomasnet.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or recommend us to a colleague. Your feedback helps us to continue to advocate for industry across the airwaves. The Thomas Industry Update podcast is recorded at Five Penn Plaza in the heart of New York City, where Thomas has been headquartered for 122 years. Want to get more insights on supply chain, IoT, industrial business, and more? Sign up for our Thomas Industry Update daily newsletter. With more than 300,000 subscribers, your inbox will be in good company. Subscribe now for free at thomasnet.com updates.